Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Hello, welcome to Criminal Broads, a true crime podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. Today we're getting into the case of Sintoya Brown, who you may remember as the young girl that Kim Kardashian tweeted about, but we'll get into all of that later. First, though, I have some news for you all, and I must say it is a bit sad. This is going to be the last month of Criminal Broads, at least for the time being. I'm not canceling the podcast. I'm not shutting it down forever. I'm not deleting every episode and flouncing off in a huff. But I am taking some time away from it. And I know so many of you really like the podcast and it breaks my heart to, I feel like I'm abandoning you, but let me just explain. I am first and foremost a writer, as maybe you know if you know anything about me. And when I am writing something that's not a podcast, not something audio, but something online or in print, it takes a long time. And I ideally get a nice chunk of time to do that. I don't know if you remember, but a couple episodes ago, I told you about this piece I wrote for the American Bar Association Journal on the lawyer who's representing a mother of an alleged victim of John Wayne Gacy. That piece was so fulfilling for me to write, and it took months, months between pitching the idea and seeing the idea in print. It was actually the cover story of that month's ABBA journal. I probably worked on it on and off for about two months, and then there was a revision, and the piece was about 4,000 words. One of my Criminal Broads podcast episodes is usually five, 6,000 words. Last week, the Massey episode was 8,000 words, and I write that in a week. And I can do it. I mean, I've been doing it all year. I think it's been great practice. I'm proud of the episodes I've put out, but that is not how I like to work, ideally. That's too fast. I can't write and research with the care that I would prefer to. And I care so much about the research. I love when you guys write in saying you learned something new from an episode, like you thought you knew everything about the case and then you learned something new. That's from the research. I promise I'm not just making up things (laughs) to surprise you. You know, that's from the research, but there's really only so much research you can do in a week and then also write, edit, and record the podcast. When I think about my future as a writer, I don't want to be cranking out these very long scripts once a week. It's just not going to be the quality that I ideally want in my future. So I'm stepping back. I'm going to turn more to writing writing, not podcast script writing. So I will still be around. If you still want to read my writings on true crime, you'll still be able to. But that's what I'm doing. And I might bring back Criminal Broads in the future in a different format, like maybe some shorter seasons. We'll see. I don't want to promise anything. Anyway, thanks for listening to this me ramble about this, but we'll have another month together. And then I'll tell you how you can get in touch with me, you know, forever and ever. Like I said, I'm not going anywhere. Okay. Thank you so much for all the support and kind messages you've sent me over the years of this podcast. It really means a lot to me. All right, let's get into the case. This is a pretty recent case. You may know the name Centoya Brown. It may trigger a vague like, huh, in your memory. 
And the action takes place pretty much all through the 2000s that we've all lived through. So buckle up your seatbelts and we're going to go back to Tennessee starting in the 1990s. See you there. For Centoya Brown, life was good in the early 1990s in Clarksville, Tennessee. She was a little princess who loved and was beloved by her parents. She was their baby. Her two siblings were already out of the house, so whatever baby Centoya wanted, she got. She and her mom were the best of friends. They'd go to church and then go to the buffet at the local steakhouse, where Centoya ate like a queen. Yes, life was good back then. At least, what she could remember of it. She didn't have a memory of the time that she was kidnapped at just a few months old. She obviously didn't remember her time in utero, surrounded by Jack Daniels and crack cocaine. She couldn't feel the repercussions of her birthright yet. She was happy. And then she started kindergarten, and she noticed something that made her do a double take. All of her classmates were the same color as their parents— But she wasn't. Her parents had dark skin, but her skin was lighter. She asked her mom what was going on. Her mom told her that she was adopted. Her biological mother, Gina, was a white woman. Her biological father was a black man. Gina had given birth to Centoya when she was only 16. During that pregnancy, Gina drank heavily and tried crack cocaine for the first time. Gina would give her daughter up and then later come by and kidnap her, taking her into crack houses and God knows where else. Of course, Centoya's mom didn't tell her any of that just then. She merely said that being mixed race, like Centoya was, was nothing to be ashamed of. She said, that makes you special, just like Mariah Carey. But as Centoya grew older, she felt herself changing and she could never really explain why. It was like her biological heritage was simmering in the background of her being, conspiring against her. She found it hard to control her impulses, hard to explain why she was so quick to anger, so willing to do, well, really dumb things. Part of it was that kids were always making fun of her. In her school full of black kids, a lot of people bullied Centoya by calling her white, which enraged her. She felt like she didn't belong anywhere. So she started acting out, just little things at first, like shoplifting a necklace from Walmart. She memorized her dad's credit card number and started buying porn online. She stole from a family friend. Her behavior grew worse and worse by little increments until she was kicked out of the gifted program at school, which had been an honor that her mom was so proud of. That only fed into Centoya's sense that she didn't belong anywhere— And worse, that she didn't deserve to belong anywhere. That she was no good. One day, she stole a bottle of caffeine pills from her brother-in-law, and she went around school showing them off, feeling like a real badass. Suddenly, she found herself in the principal's office. We do not tolerate selling drugs here, he told her. Just like that, she was expelled from sixth grade. It would be years, over a decade, until Centoya could change the path that she was on. With this expulsion, she was sent to an alternative school, 
And every point of contact she had with these systems just made her actions worse. Her friends got tougher and meaner. Her attitude got more and more nihilistic. Every decision seemed to lead to a worse one. Every authority figure seemed to view her through a lens of disdain. Worse, she viewed herself with disdain. Why should she change? She was a bad kid, she thought. So she went to the alternative school, and the friends she made there got her thrown into juvenile detention on a breaking and entering charge. And that led to her spending some time in a psychiatric facility. It was amazing how quickly you could spiral once the system got its hooks in you, once you had a black mark on your record. Then she was on probation, and by the time she was finally allowed back at her original school, she was a different girl. She had to sit behind a screen in class so that the other kids couldn't see her, presumably so that her evil nature wouldn't rub off on them. One day, she came into the classroom and found her teacher going through her purse. When Centoya snatched the purse away, outraged at the invasion of her privacy, the teacher pressed charges against her for assault. Bam. More juvenile detention. Now in the custody of the state, she met kids who were far more serious than any of the quote-unquote bad kids she'd known before. These were kids who sold crack, who had boyfriends in their 30s, who'd killed people. She learned to live among them by fighting at the drop of a hat. She also made plans to escape, which she did twice, each time a family member turned her back in. Her third escape attempt got her sent to an even higher security facility. All of this, and she was still only 13 years old. Even though she was young, Centoya was no stranger to sex. Later, she would admit that her view of sex was completely warped. Her obsessive porn watching had taught her that it was totally normal for women to walk into rooms and have sex with whatever strangers they found there. And that's how her first sexual encounter went. She lost her virginity at age 12 to a much older stranger who offered to let her use his phone. In her mind, at the time, that encounter was just how things were done. That was sex. I didn't even understand why I did it, she wrote later. Another thing that numbed her to sex was that she was used to men eyeing her up and down like she was a piece of meat. Once, a family friend referred to her as one of those young girls who developed in all the right places, and she slammed a truck door on his leg. She was feisty like that, but she also grew numb to men's predatory behavior. For example, after her first escape attempt— The guy who'd driven her getaway car took her into a bedroom and pulled out a condom without saying anything. She just thought to herself, well, I guess I owe him. And so she paid. After she was finally released from state custody, she went home to live with her mom again. Her mom was overjoyed to have her little girl back. But Centoya was discovering the painful truth, you can never go home again. Her parents had divorced while she was locked up and now she found it impossible to adjust back to normal life. After all, she was no longer a normal kid. In her mind, she was a street-smart adult who didn't need rules. She skipped school and smoked weed all day. She got into fights with anyone who looked sideways at her. And before long, she was planning yet another escape attempt. She ran away, age 15, 
and started living with some friends she'd made while stuck in the system. These were girls who spent all their money on weed and almost never bought food, and Centoya lost so much weight while living with them that her clothes started hanging off her. Her friends introduced her to their way of thinking, which was, never sleep with a man unless he pays you. But Centoya couldn't bring herself to actually ask anyone for money, because her mom had always told her that she should never ask for a dime. So she'd tell these men sob stories instead, and they would inevitably hand her a wad of cash. Still, she found this unsatisfying, kind of demeaning. And so to make her own money, she started helping her friend's boyfriend sell crack cocaine. She would skim a little bit off the top when he inevitably didn't pay her what he'd promised her. This wasn't rock bottom for her. But at the time, it felt like rock bottom. And eventually, she made her way back home. At home, she marveled at all the fresh fruit her mother kept in the fridge— She hadn't had anything as luxurious as a piece of fresh fruit in ages. And then she ran away again. She just didn't think of herself as someone who deserved to live in a nice house with a loving mother. She didn't think she could live that life. So she called her mom from a Greyhound station and told her that she was leaving. To this day, I'm still haunted by the sound of mommy's voice shattering into a million pieces as she begged me to stay she wrote later in her autobiography. I could hear her heart breaking through the payphone. If I could go back, I would run back to mommy's house right then and there. I would stop believing I was too far gone to save and let mommy take care of me. Sintoya didn't know it. Maybe her mother suspected it. But this escape attempt would be the one that doomed her. One day, she got a call from her friend's boyfriend, the one who sold crack. He told her that he'd pay her $5,000 to come down to Florida with him on a drug run. Instead, he took her to a hotel room on false pretenses, spiked her drink, and raped her for the next two days as she drifted in and out of consciousness. When she realized what had happened to her, she felt disgusted and furious and disgusting and broken. And so not long after that, when Sintoya met a man who went by the name Cutthroat, a man who actually seemed interested in her, who asked her questions instead of blabbing on about himself, who wasn't drugging and raping her right off the bat, who seemed kind, despite his ominous nickname, she thought, this guy is so different than every other guy I've ever known. He might be the one. Let's take a quick break to hear from this episode's sponsors. Our first sponsor is Nutrafol. All right, guys, hold my hands. Let's hold hands and let's chant together. I want great hair. I want great hair. Don't we all want lush, beautiful hair that sort of looks like we have extensions, but like it's natural? Okay. The changes in your body postpartum can take a toll on your hair. And keep listening even if you're not postpartum. But it's a cliche, a sad cliche that women who give birth sometimes experience 
excessive shedding of hair afterwards. So enter Nutrafol. Nutrafol's goal is to empower women to embrace the beauty of their hair growth recovery with Nutrafol postpartum by targeting the root causes of thinning hair. It's breastfeeding friendly, OBGYN developed, 100% drug-free. This is not some weird gas station hair growth supplement, okay? This is classy. This is science-backed. Healthier hair growth takes time, so in three to six months after taking your Nutrafol, you'll begin to see thicker, stronger hair that looks, I'll say, like you could be an Instagram hair model. You can grow stronger, healthier hair and support this show by going to Nutrafol.com and using the promo code BROADS to save $15 off your first month's subscription. This is their best offer anywhere, and it's only available to U.S. customers for a limited time. Plus, free shipping on every order. Get $15 off at Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code BROADS. Our second sponsor, speaking of babies, is Modern Fertility. Do you have any big plans for your future? Are you starting to ask yourself questions like, should I maybe at some point have one of those chubby, squirming, cute little things with their eyes squinted shut that looks like dumplings in photos? I'm talking about babies. And if you're thinking about one, consider taking the Modern Fertility Hormone Test. It's a simple at-home finger prick that unlocks tons of insights into your reproductive health. We're talking egg count. We're talking menopause timing. We're talking about egg freezing, IVF, possible outcomes for those things. Things that are helpful to know if kids are in your future. It's easy and affordable, and you'll get your personalized test results within 10 days after you mail it in with a prepaid label. Obviously, you're not paying with stamps here. It's also cheaper than traditional testing with your doctor, which can cost over $1,000. But Modern Fertility gets you the same info at $159 plus $20 off if you use my code. Let's get into that code right now. Modern Fertility is offering our listeners $20 off the test when you go to modernfertility.com slash criminalbroads. That means your test will cost $139 instead of the several hundred or even thousand plus dollars it could cost at a doctor's office. Get 20% off your fertility test when you go to modernfertility.com slash criminalbroads. Modernfertility.com slash criminalbroads. The first time Centoya and Cutthroat drove around in his car, she felt like she could talk to him forever. Never mind that he kept snorting Vazine up his nose, which she later found was laced with cocaine. He seemed so kind. Never mind that when they got a room at a cheap hotel, he offered her her first hit of cocaine. It made her feel so good. Unfortunately, it also made her want to get more and more of it, the cocaine, and this meant that she rubbed elbows with guys who treated her worse than ever before. One day, she was assaulted by two separate men, one who'd given her some cocaine and then raped her when she fell asleep, and another who was a friend of Cutthroat's. That guy had picked her up, pretending like he was sent there by Cut, and then raped her. It was a horrific 24 hours. I felt like somebody had hung a sign on me, Announcing my body was ripe for the taking, she wrote. My body felt numb, detached, like it didn't belong to me. But at least Cut wasn't like those guys. He was different. 
right? When Cott found out that one of his best friends had raped Centoya, he blamed not the friend, but Centoya herself. He started talking nonstop about how she was such a slut, but that was okay because he liked sluts. With this new narrative of his, that she was a slut, he started behaving differently towards her. He would pressure her into stealing money from other guys by promising sex. She would have to pretend like she was going to have sex with them, ask for the money up front, and then escape. Before long, he was pressuring her to actually have sex with these men. Once, using a gun, he forced her to have sex with one of his friends, a favor between bros. Another time, he forced her to write a demeaning document about all the ways that she was a slut and all the rules for being a slut that she had to follow. Centoya didn't know the word grooming back then. She didn't know the word trafficking, or at least she didn't know that it could apply to someone like her. And it never crossed her mind that Cut was treating her not like a boyfriend, but like a pimp. She just kept telling herself that once they had enough money, they'd get out of these cheap hotel rooms, they'd make a better life for themselves, and he'd treat her nicely once again. When Cut told her that she wasn't allowed to wear clothes in their hotel room anymore, when he forced her to have sex with him at the drop of a hat, when he pointed a loaded gun at her over and over again, when he punched her in the face, when he dragged her around by the hair, when he choked her until she blacked out, she told herself, that every relationship went through rough patches. The night that he choked her was August 6, 2004. When she came to, he kicked her and told her to get outside and earn some money. She got dressed. She put his gun in her purse like she always did when she was soliciting, and she went outside. She was crying, despairing. She was walking through the parking lot of a Sonic drive through when a 43-year-old man pulled up next to her. His name was Johnny Allen. He was a real estate agent. He was engaged. He asked her if she needed a ride and if she was hungry. She thought wildly that maybe this man wasn't trying to buy sex from her. Maybe he actually cared about her. Maybe he could see that she was upset. Maybe he was going to help her. When he asked her if she was okay, she explained her whole situation to him, that she was stuck in a hotel room with a man who beat and raped her, that she didn't know how to escape, where to go next. Johnny asked her where she was from, and she told him, and then waited for him to say that he would help her. Well, he said, are you up for any action? He took her back to his house, where he told her that he was in the military that he used to be a sharpshooter, and that he had plenty of guns. He showed her some of his rifles. His behavior was creeping her out. She felt like he was going to do something bad to her. They got into bed together, but he kept getting out of bed, which made her nervous. What was he planning? At first he was just stroking me, but then it's like he just grabbed me like, in between my legs, like, he just grabbed it real hard. And he just gave me this look. It was, like, a very fierce look. And then it just sent these chills up my spine. I'm thinking he's going to hit me or do something like that. But then he rolls over and reaches, like, he's reaching to the side of the bed or something. So I'm thinking, now oh, he's not going to hit me. He's going to get a gun. Mm-hmm. And, and what did you do at that time? I just grabbed the gun and I shot him. 
Sintoya claims not to remember what exactly happened that night. In her memoir, she says that in her memory, the murder is like a movie out of order. She says that when she fired Cut's gun, she didn't really understand what she'd done. She stayed in the house for three more hours until she finally realized that Johnny Allen was dead, really dead. He was bloody and slumped over in his own bed. She raced back to Cut in their lonely hotel room, and they turned on the TV. And it wasn't long before the murder was all over the local news, and the cops were pounding on their hotel room door, screaming, Don't move! Before Centoya's trial could start, one vital question had to be answered. Would she be tried as a juvenile or as an adult? She was only 16, but she'd committed a serious crime, and murder sometimes got juveniles transferred to adult court, where the consequences were far more dire. She tried to make herself look nice for the hearing that would determine the rest of her life. She braided her hair into pigtails and then tied each one with a bit of latex from an old glove. She looked about 13 years old. In jail, she'd been praying desperately to be tried in juvenile court, as pieces of the Christianity of her youth came flooding back to her. But the pigtails and the prayers didn't work. She was going to be tried as an adult. Her lawyer was weeping when she told Sintoya the news, and Sintoya later wrote, God hadn't heard me at all. If her transfer hearing hadn't gone well, her trial would be even worse. She prepared for it like a maniac, reading as many law books as she could get her hands on, coming up with different legal arguments that her lawyers dismissed as nonsense. She was behaving kind of erratically because she was on all sorts of psychotropic drugs, sometimes three kinds at once. She couldn't stay awake. She obsessed over one thing after another. She cut off her hair and shaved her eyebrows so that she wouldn't feel like a sexual person anymore. As she was waiting for trial, she opened a newspaper one day and read that Cut had been killed, shot in the chest, the stomach, and the face. She was devastated. It would take her a long time to come to the realization that what he had done to her was wrong, that it wasn't love, it was abuse. For a long time, though, she clung to the narrative that he had been the one, despite it all. After two years of waiting for it, her trial arrived. In the courtroom, she was painted as a cold-blooded killer, a robber who'd killed an innocent man just to rifle through his stuff. The DA played a phone call she'd made to her mother from jail. In it, her mother cries that she just wants Sintoya to have a normal life, and Sintoya, also crying, responds, I'm not going to have an adult life. I killed somebody. I executed him. The jury took that statement at face value. When they came filing back into the courtroom to read their verdict, one of them caught her eye and shook his head just slightly. She knew in that moment that her sentence would be life. Prison actually wasn't that bad compared to all the other various facilities that Sintoya had spent time in over the last four years. She'd been in many a depressing cell, but her cell at the Tennessee Prison for Women was, in her opinion, kind of cozy. She had a TV, a fan. 
She could buy ramen noodles from the commissary. She could smoke cigarettes. She could make an appointment to get her hair done. Still, it was prison. She got in trouble for every little thing. The guards were extremely strict. And she was struggling with her old demon, impulse control. She didn't yet have the vocabulary to explain why she struggled with the things she struggled with. She just knew that she couldn't stop fighting, making trouble. Before long, she was thrown into maximum security for a year, where she spent so much time in shackles that she still has scars on the backs of her ankles to this day. She lost her mind in there temporarily, and once she became convinced that she'd lost 100 pounds in two days, she screamed at the guards to help her, sure that something had gone terribly wrong. She would swing from one extreme to another in prison, fighting and making trouble, and then resolving to turn her life around. Often, she resolved this because of her mom, who was the one constant thing in her life, and who visited her every two weeks like clockwork. When her mom was diagnosed with breast cancer, Centoya was determined that this was it, this was the time she'd really improve. She got out of Max two months early for good behavior, She started exercising, tried to walk the straight and narrow, although she spent some time illegally selling tobacco and got out of the biz right before the whole thing was discovered and the ringleader was sent to Max. But most importantly, she was accepted into college. It was a college program called the Lipscomb Initiative for Education, or LIFE. Lipscomb was a private Christian university, and they had this program where incarcerated students were allowed to take classes right alongside the free students. Centoya walked into the classroom ready for everyone to judge her, for the Christians in the classroom to act all holier than thou. But she ended up loving it. She found the community very healing, and she loved what she was learning in her criminal justice class about things like restorative justice and peacemaking. She was also starting to learn something about herself. Even though she'd always thought of herself as someone who had no purpose, who was just a failure and a broken thing— she was becoming a little bit of an activist. When she saw something wrong, she would do anything to make it right. Other people's injustices really fired her up. And people, like teachers and authority figures, were starting to ask her opinion on criminal justice matters, on issues with girls just like her. People wanted to hear what she had to say. Hmm, maybe there was a future there for her. In the meantime, she was losing all of her appeals. Even when a prestigious lawyer took on her case pro bono, and when doctors testified at a hearing that she was mentally impaired because of all the drinking that her birth mother did, and that this meant she couldn't control her behavior, even all of that didn't sway the criminal justice system in her favor. On paper, she was a teenage killer, nothing more. Not a domestic abuse victim, not someone who suffered from fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, and certainly not a victim of sex trafficking. Centoya herself barely knew that these terms applied to her life. Judges and prosecutors certainly didn't. But hearing herself described at that hearing as someone with tons of mental problems who suffered from fetal alcohol spectrum disorder— This was extremely scarring for Centoya. She hadn't expected those diagnoses, and she sat there as doctors droned on and on about how messed up she was. She felt horrible. Afterward, in a desperate attempt to make herself feel better, she made a doomed decision. She started a relationship with a guard. This was, of course, strictly forbidden. When their love letters to each other were discovered, she was temporarily transferred to a different prison— in Memphis, 
away from her friends, from her education, from her mom. In Memphis, she had a lot of time on her hands, and it was there that she kept remembering the idea of God. There was never a come-to-Jesus moment. It was more like a slow, strange trickle. And I mean strange. She started having dreams. Dreams about dogs. Memphis used to have a puppy program, but then it got taken away. But the prison always swirled with rumors that it would come back because those ladies loved their puppies. First, Centoya dreamed that the program would be reinstalled. And then it was. Then she dreamed that a specific kind of dog would show up at the program. A white dog with black spots, a knot on his head, and a pink tip on his tail. A few days later, that exact puppy showed up. She had two more dreams like this, dreams that came true exactly. And it was so weird and notable that she kept trying to interpret it. What did this mean? She remembered the story of Joseph in the Bible. He had strange skills with dreams, too. He was locked up, too. She sat there, thinking about all of this. Joseph had been locked up for a purpose. Was it possible that she had a purpose, too? That her life wasn't just a series of random, cruel events? That she wasn't a worthless, no-good human? But that she had purpose and worth? She started thinking back on her life. If she hadn't been in prison when Cut was murdered, she might have been killed right next to him. If her case hadn't gotten the attention that it did, she wouldn't be receiving all the letters she received from young kids who were lost and sad and looking to her for help. Joseph said, famously, what man intended for evil, God intended for good. Was it possible that Centoya herself could do good? Many of the letters she received were basically Tinder profiles from men who saw her face on TV and got a crush on her. She laughed at these with her friends, but nothing ever came of them. Then one day, she got a letter that stood out. This man had burned the edges of his paper, so it looked kind of vintage. The letter was straightforward and kind, with no hint of sex or predatory behavior in it. And the writer had included some photos of himself. Centoya and her friend screamed when they saw the photos. It could not be denied. This guy was one of the hottest men they had ever seen. The handsome letter writer was a man named Jamie Long, and he was writing to Centoya to say that he was sure her story would have a happy ending. God was going to overturn her sentence, he said. He was the sort of Christian who, to be honest, sounds kind of crazy to most other people. Like Centoya, he had premonitions. He felt God talking to him, and he was convinced that she was getting out of there. The two wrote back and forth, back and forth. Jamie had a rough background, too along with an almost literal come-to-Jesus moment where he turned his car around and changed his life. When he decided to come up from Texas, where he lived, to visit Centoya, Centoya prepped for the visit like she was getting ready for prom. In person, he was swooningly handsome, and she had butterflies the whole time. But he didn't kiss her when he said goodbye, and he didn't give her any romantic signals, and she left the visit feeling totally confused. As it turned out, 
Jamie was just trying to get his own butterflies under control. They wrote back and forth more and spoke on the phone constantly. And finally, in one letter, he admitted it. I love you. Centoya reminded him that she might never get out of prison. They might never be able to be together. But Jamie insisted that she was getting out. He was so convinced of this that he actually moved to Nashville and bought a house and told her that he planned to take her there as his wife. Centoya spent long hours dreaming of that sort of life, to have a house, to be with him. One of her dreams involved cleaning products. She fantasized about owning her own cleaning products and scrubbing her own counters until they shined. That was freedom to her, to have power over her own space, to make it sparkle and smell nice. In 2015, when Centoya was 27 years old and had been behind bars for 11 years, she got her associate's degree in liberal arts from Lipscomb University. She was only supposed to invite four people, but she invited everyone she knew. She made a huge cake with seven different colors of frosting. She painted her nails with Lipscomb's colors, purple and gold. A decade ago, she had thought of herself as nothing, as worthless, as a bad girl with impulse control issues who was destined for nothing more than a cold bed in a cell somewhere. And now she knew that she was so much more valuable than that. She got up on stage to accept her degree, and she looked down into the audience at her mom, who had tears streaming down her face. Centoya pointed at her mom. This is for you, she said. Her voice cracked. Everything good that I've done is for you. And then one day, someone told Centoya that the rapper T.I. had posted about her on social media. Centoya was baffled. How in the world did T.I. know her name? Okay, so she'd just done a TV interview, but it wasn't supposed to be a huge thing. She had started this project designed to educate young girls about sex trafficking. When she was a young girl, she thought sex trafficking was when you got shoved into a truck by a bunch of foreign men and driven across a border into a strange land. She didn't know that your quote-unquote boyfriend could sex traffic you right from your own hotel room. But now she knew, and she wanted other girls to learn that before it was too late for them. So she'd started this initiative called Glitter, and she'd done an interview to publicize it. And during the interview, her lawyer had briefly mentioned that they were going to ask the governor of Tennessee for clemency. They'd used up all of Centoya's appeals, so clemency was their last option. And somehow that interview went viral. Suddenly, she was a meme. There was a photo of her at 16, her hair and those infamous pigtails, circulating around social media, along with this text. Imagine at the age of 16 being sex trafficked by a pimp named Cutthroat. After days of being repeatedly drugged and raped by different men, you were purchased by a 43-year-old child predator who took you to his home to use you for sex. You ended up finding enough courage to fight back and shoot and kill him. You're arrested as a result, tried and convicted as an adult, and sentenced to life in prison. This is the story of Centoya Brown. She will be eligible for parole when she is 69 years old. 
hashtag free Centoya Brown. Rihanna posted about her. LeBron James posted about her. Snoop Dogg posted about her. Kim Kardashian posted about her, saying that she was having her own lawyers look into the case. The attention grew and grew, and Centoya felt sick. She knew that with a clemency petition, you don't want a lot of attention. With attention come the haters, people who come out of the woodwork to argue, wait, no, she's a murderer, keep her locked up for life. The only thing that kept her calm during this heady, terrifying wave of attention was Jamie. They prayed together on the phone as she tried to keep a level head. She wasn't even sure she'd get a hearing to argue for clemency. Most people didn't get one of those. Only 2% of clemency applications ever reached that stage. But on May 23, 2018, she finally got that longed-for hearing. She walked into a room to see that the board who would be listening to her was all white. But one of them seemed to wink at her. It was a sign of hope. A far cry from the man on the jury who'd shaken his head just before that jury found her guilty. We are here with a story of transformation, said Centoya's lawyer. This is a story, a record story, of transformation in the life of a wasted child who has become a beautiful, intelligent, caring, educated woman who can make things better in this world. Tears filled Centoya's eyes as witness after witness got up and testified about the woman she'd become. She herself spoke, apologizing in a broken voice for the hurt she'd caused, asking humbly for mercy. I just wanted to say thank you first. I know a lot of people get to see you, um, but I have prayed for a very long time to be able to meet with you. The board was split. Two voted to grant her request, but two voted to deny it. The other two voted to make her eligible for parole after serving 25 years instead of 50, which was her original sentence. But the only vote that really counted was the governor of Tennessee's. For seven months after the hearing, Centoya returned to her life of waiting, of praying with Jamie, of trying to be level-headed about the whole thing and not get her hopes up. But she dreamed that she was walking without shackles or handcuffs in a yellow dress, and she thought to herself, I'm getting out. I'm getting out in the summer. And then she got the news. She was getting out. Her release date was set for August of 2019. But she and Jamie couldn't wait. They got married over the phone, using some legal loophole that Centoya had researched obsessively. Jamie prepared their house for her as the months turned into weeks and then days. And then one night, just after 1 a.m., the guards came to wake her, and she walked out of those prison doors for the very last time. She had to leave in the middle of the night to avoid the media, who were all camped around the prison, expecting her to leave in the morning. She got into a car with Jamie, who was waiting for her, and he took her home. The house that he'd bought for them was beautiful. It was full of fresh fruit and groceries and all the beauty products she'd ever mentioned that she liked, and a closet full of shoes and clothes just her size. She looked around in every corner, and then she pulled herself a bath. A bath. She soaked in the tub and thought about how she was going to wake up the next day and clean the whole house. And she wasn't just going to clean, of course. 
She was going to become a voice for all the women just like her who were still locked up, whose sentences were crippling them, who were painted as cold-blooded killers and not victims of abuse or sex trafficking. Women just like her, except without the celebrities tweeting about them. She would become their voice. And in the following years, Centoya Brown would do just that. She would go on a national speaking tour, would write a memoir, would think about law school, would advocate for change. She had a bright future ahead of her, the type of future that her mom envisioned for her when she was just a little girl going to that academically gifted program in her school. Yes, she had a lot to do. But first, she was going to lay there and soak her scarred ankles in the bubble bath and taste freedom. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed Centoya's story. Many of those details were taken from her memoir, Free Centoya, which you can read if you want to know more about her life. You can also follow her and her husband, Jamie Long, on Instagram if you want to see how handsome he is. And it is cute and sweet to see them living their lives. I mean, I'm not going to say they're living normal lives because they're famous now. So they're sort of like influencery, <laughs> but they're still living their lives and enjoying things. Like they just did an ad about some sort of food. It's just like warms my heart to see Centoya get to take pleasure in these things like food and like do an ad for food and hopefully get paid for that. It just is nice to see. So check them out on Instagram. Also, important to note that I have done an episode, episode 15 of this podcast from a zillion years ago, is about a pretty darn similar case. It's the episode on Felicia Blakely. Some of you have probably listened to it. Some of you haven't. Is a very similar case, very similar. She was 16 years old when she met this guy who she thought was her boyfriend. He totally groomed her, brainwashed her, manipulated her, abused her, and um, forced her to kill several people. She was sent to prison for life, just like Centoya. A lot of similarities. She's also a young black woman like Centoya. Now she's, I think, in her 30s, but was a teenager when she was arrested. Anyway, her case has gotten some attention. There's a book on it, a movie on it, but definitely not the Kim Kardashian, Snoop Dogg, LeBron, James, Rihanna level of attention that Centoya's got. It's just notable the difference in these cases, and it almost seems like a... I don't want to say the word crapshoot because that's such an ugly word. What's a better word for that? But it almost seems like a crapshoot, like which cases happen to get the attention and maybe the public pressure that leads to clemency and which don't. It's very sad and makes me kind of feel claustrophobic when I think about. So I don't have an easy solution there. But if you want to hear the story of Felicia Blakely and look for the similarities and maybe the ways it's different than Centoya's story, check out episode 15, Teenager in Love. You also will hear from Felicia on that episode. All right. I will let you go. I will see you here next week. We're doing a case that I haven't decided on yet. Ah, I have a couple options. Sometimes I go back and forth until the last minute. But it'll be a good one, I promise you. I'll see you here next week. Hope you're having a lovely summer. I hope you get a chance to eat a very ripe tomato sprinkled with salt and pepper and put on a piece of white bread with a little smear of mayonnaise 
or butter, however you do your tomato sandwiches. I hope you do one, unless you hate tomatoes, in which case I hope you find a slice of some sort of pie or pastry made with stone fruit. That's also seasonal. Or a really perfectly boiled ear of corn. Oh my gosh, I think I'm hungry. (laughs) All right, talk to you next week. Bye. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty, guilty of loving